Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Today we're starting something new. I'm very excited to present to you, in its entirety, the Apologetics Conference held in Paducah, Kentucky last June. We've got a great lineup of speakers for you, including Jerry Weirwell, myself, Kenny Willenberg, Dale Tuggy, Keegan Chandler, and John Truitt. It was a wonderful time of meeting people and working together to figure out ways of reaching the millennial generation with the gospel. As it turned out, a great majority of the presentations focused on understanding the postmodern worldview. Now, this was so helpful because it's nearly impossible to discuss important issues if both people are unaware of the fact that they are each coming from incompatible worldviews. Their underlying assumptions and moral groundings are so opposite and incompatible. Although for many of us, our natural inclination is to show someone why their underlying assumptions are invalid, a better starting point for evangelism is to work within their postmodern outlook to show how attractive and awesome the gospel is, at least to get our foot in the door. In this first presentation, Jerry Werewolf covers a brief history of how major philosophers initiated a movement that led to sequestering away faith as something personal and private. Then he talks about ways to broach spiritual topics with secular people all around us without triggering their, this is my private, personal perspective alarm. His talk is relatively short, only 34 minutes long, but I also included the questions and comments, which went on for another half hour. Here now is podcast 143, The Problem of Privatization with Dr. Jerry Werewolf. What I'm going to start off talking about this morning to kind of kickstart this event is I'm going to paint a picture of some of the ways that the world has sort of changed, specific American, Western, Western culture in America has changed over the, the past couple centuries to arrive at the current situation we're in. And the issue that I'm going to focus on is, has come to be known as humanism. Now, let's go back a little ways and get a running start into this. Back in the early 1600s, we're basically going to start with this guy named Rene Descartes. You guys may not know this. He is famous for this line, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore, I am. Has anybody heard that before? That's pretty well known. So Rene Descartes, uh, a pious Catholic, he wanted to basically distill everything down to a concrete form of knowledge that he called certain knowledge. He wanted to know, how can I know something for certain? And he basically began this journey sort of saying, I can cast doubt on everything except myself. And that to be able to cast doubt on something indicates that I can think about it. And because I can think about it, that means that I must actually exist. And from that basis of his own self-existence, he then would go on to construct understanding the rest of the world, including the existence of God. But basically, he put himself as the center and the source for knowledge. That was a complete shift. And I think that my friend Sean will speak a little bit more about how that was the beginning of what's called modernity or modern thinking, which uh, came about as in the onset of the Enlightenment. So this is the beginning uh, of this shift. Rene Descartes took the idea that God as the, uh, the source and the way for understanding the world, because that was like back earlier in the scholastic period with some other theologians and philosophers, what that they would understand the world because they understood God. They used, they used God as the center and then tried to understand the world through it. That's, that's kind of where Newtonian physics and everything came from. And all the great scientists, they looked at understanding, here's God and God created this world, and therefore it's rational and reasonable and orderly. It didn't start with themselves, but Rene uh, Descartes turned it 
away from a God-based knowledge source to a man-based knowledge source. And from there, we, get, we go to people like John Locke. And I'm not going to go through a, a whole bunch of names here. John Locke, uh, later in the 1600s, decided to come up with something called empiricism. And what he said was, uh, Rene Descartes uh, looked at everything in the mind. And everything in the mind, he said, was kind of where the source of knowledge can lie. John Locke was like, no, that's, that's not how it is. It's not that in your mind you can conceive of something, therefore it's true. He said that actually sense perception is the basis for true knowledge, that what you perceive with your senses, that's actually what, what re, where you can have the real source of knowledge. And so that's where we get uh, empiricism is basically understanding our knowledge based upon observation and experimentation. And so these two things were at, at odds with each other. But up here with uh, René Descartes, he basically tried to divide mind from matter. And so in the, in the mind aspect up here, he put things like spirit. I mean, he was a Christian, and he was trying to actually defend the Christian faith uh, and make it more impenetrable to criticisms. He put up here like spirit, thought, the will. He even put emotions up here in, in the mind. And then down here in matter, he put all the mechanistic types of things in the world, all the physical processes, natural laws, and things like that. John Locke, with empiricism, he didn't see the mind as providing anything of substance. He looked to matter. He looked to the way that our senses perceive the world around us. That then gave, gave way to uh, a guy named David Hume, who came along with skepticism, where basically anything that, was, that cannot be proven by scientific fact, this was the scientific revolution, that everything that could not be proven by fact was basically doubted. It, was, it was not, uh, could not be verifiable, and therefore was not actually considered to be truth. Following him, a guy named Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant had this uh, idea of absolute idealism, and what he was trying to do was say that you can come to a conclusion based on rationality about something that is an antithesis meaning one thing is true and another thing is false, and they can't both be true. And he, he relied upon the law of non-contradiction very heavily. Uh, but then in response to him, there's philosopher George Hegel. And this is where my story kind of culminates. He came in to speak something about dialectic, dialectic idealism. And what he was uh, about was trying to say, you know, it's really not about this or this. The pursuit of truth isn't about saying what something isn't and then saying what it is. It's about a synthetic approach. It's about trying to bring ideas together. So rather than either or, the, antith the antithesis approach, it's a synthesis approach where it's both and, where uh, truth can be found by bringing ideas together and merging them. And that's where the problem came with what we have today as relativism, that Truth can be found by looking to merge ideas or uh, permit multiple ideas to all be valid and, and true at the same time. What this ultimately did was he was the basis for Marxism. Kant, um, in his idea of trying to make reason the dominant force, put human freedom up and put like nature below. So this is like the, um, the autonomous self. And this, uh, and this down here was all the Newtonian uh, world machine, everything by natural laws. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is because this would then pave the way for the idea that the values, the things that we stand for, the, our, our thoughts and our perceived notions of right and wrong are then distinct from what science has discovered and can prove by verifiable facts. So it's basically, you have uh, the world under uh, an empiricism, and then uh, religion up here being relegated to the, the mind or the, uh, the person. No longer an objective form of, of knowledge, but more like a, uh, 
subjective. Each person kind of has their own values. This right here is really the issue that we find in our world today. When we come, we come to uh, face-to-face with this where, and what I want to talk about is about how this influences our current culture and the way we talk to individuals who are outside of religion, who are, are maybe not necessarily atheists, but just don't have a particular belief system, that the world, the public, looks at things that are factual, scientifically provable, as being sort of like the world. The world is in this fact-based system that's provable. Now, if you want to get outside of that to religion, metaphysics, supernatural things, things outside the world, then those are our values. Those are things that are, are not provable in, their, in the eyes of, pu- of the public and therefore don't belong there. And so what, what this en- ended up doing is in the last century, there's been a rise in what is known as humanism. And humanism has its roots in Rene Descartes and the idea of the person being the center of knowledge. And there's been uh, three different manifestos written, one in 1933, one in 1973, and one in 2003. And if you aren't familiar with what humanism is, it is the bedrock of the American culture. I would like to read to you the third humanist manifesto from 2003. It's one page, but this will give you an idea of the dominant uh, milieu that our culture promotes. So this is the Humanist Manifesto, the third one of, of 2003. Humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without supernaturalism affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. The life stance of humanism, guided by reason, inspired by compassion and informed by experience, encourages us to live well and fully. It evolved through the ages and continues to develop through the efforts of thoughtful people who recognize that values and ideals, however carefully wrought, are subject to change as our knowledge and understandings advance. This document is part of an ongoing effort to manifest in clear and positive terms the conceptual boundaries of humanism. Not what we must believe, but a consensus of what we do believe. It is in this sense that we affirm the following. And they have one, two, three, four, five, six points. First one, knowledge of the world is derived by observation, experimentation, and rational analysis. Humanists find that science is the best method for determining this knowledge, as well as for solving problems and developing beneficial technologies. We also recognize the value of new departures in thought, the arts, and inner experience, each subject to analysis by critical intelligence. Two, humans are an integral part of nature, the result of unguided evolutionary change. Humanists recognize nature as self-existing. We accept our life as all and enough, distinguishing things as they are from things that we might wish them or imagine them to be. We welcome the challenges of the future and are drawn to and undaunted by the yet-to-be-known. Three, ethical values are derived from human need and interest as tested by experience. Humanists ground values in human welfare shaped by human circumstances, interests, and concerns and extended to the global ecosystem and beyond. We are committed to treating each person as having inherent worth and dignity and to making informed choices in a context of freedom consonant with responsibility. Four, life's fulfillment emerges from individual participation in the service of humane ideals. We aim for our fullest possible development and animate our lives with a deep sense of purpose, finding wonder and awe in the joys and beauties of human existence, its challenges and tragedies, and even in the inevitability and finality of death. Humanists rely on the rich heritage of human culture and the life stance of humanism to provide comfort in times of want and encouragement in times of plenty. Five, humans are social by nature and find meaning in relationships. 
Humanists long for and strive toward a world for, of mutual care and concern, free of cruelty and its consequences, where differences are resolved cooperatively without resorting to violence. The joining of individuality with interdependence enriches our lives, encourages us to enrich the lives of others, and inspires hope of attaining peace, justice, and opportunity for all. And lastly, number six, working to benefit society maximizes individual happiness. Progressive cultures have worked to free humanity from the brutalities of mere survival and to reduce suffering, improve society, and develop global community. We seek to minimize the inequities of circumstance and ability, and we support a just distribution of nature's resources and the fruits of human effort so that as many as possible can enjoy a good life. Humanists are concerned for the well-being of all, are committed to diversity and respect of those differing with yet humane views, and we work to uphold the equal enjoyment of human rights and civil liberties in an open secular society and maintain that it is a civic duty to participate in the democratic process and a planetary duty to protect nature's integrity, diversity, and beauty in a secure, sustainable manner. Last sentence. Thus, engaged in the flow of life, we aspire to this vision with the informed conviction that humanity has the ability to progress toward its highest ideals. The responsibility for our lives and the kind of world in which we live is ours and ours alone. That is the Humanist Manifesto, third one of 2003. So did anybody get from, from that that the human individual is the center of everything? Like that's kind of, that kind of is what the whole humanist movement is about, is that humans in and of themselves can pursue and fulfill all their desires, all their aspirations. The fulfillment of what it means to be human can be found and discovered by humans alone. And so humans in humanism, humans are the center, the, the end-all, be-all. They are the, we are basically the sole arbiter of what truth is and of how we should live. And so it's from this humanistic standpoint that really we enter into a world where having uh, beliefs that extend beyond the natural world, beyond the self-existing uh, world, as the humanists call it, that they, they'd have no place any longer. They've been pushed out of the public sphere of discussion. And that's kind of where this dichotomy here between the values and facts up here, this is the private life. The values are, are part of a person's private life. And the facts are the public, in public domain. They're what the public are concerned with. And the humanists don't say that a person can't have beliefs. They just say that they are for each person to pursue on their own, for their own benefit, without any necessary need to have the entire culture geared toward that. And so we've come to what I want to talk about, and that is privatization. Now, privatization is, is what I see one of the main problems in our current society with talking about the gospel. And privatization basically is a result of the secularism that humanism has caused, if that makes sense. Humanism, where people are the center of their world, has then promoted that the public life and the culture, therefore, be devoid of all supernatural uh, connotations, and that people and their aspirations be put in place of them and that if people want to have superstitious beliefs in their eyes, they're free to do so, but to do so in their personal lives and not bring that into the public sphere of interactions and not pollute the overall good of humanity that's trying to fulfill its own ideals. And so privatization, you can believe what you want to believe, and I will believe what I want to believe, but don't tell me what to believe. We've come to this, the idea that truth is something that we all hold in ourselves. We all make our own truth. The relativism of the relativizing of truth is the outworking of humanism. And so privatization also has come in this stigma in our culture 
that actually talking about what you believe is sort of like a dangerous thing. Speaking to somebody about your faith in Jesus can be met with harsh antagonism. And, and what is, how does that make us feel if you're, ta- if you're coming into a culture where you realize that they don't, they don't want to hear what I have to say? It, it sort of uh, subconsciously puts some barriers and uh, makes us have a little bit of reluctance on speaking about, about matters of faith, about values. Because in the public eye, you are, you'll, be, you'll be chastised for that and looked upon as being probably judgmental or uh, traditional, because in a progressive society, who wants, to be a tra- who wants to be about traditional values? Or um, in the judgmental sense that you um, are viewed as a, a hater of all things not tolerated. Yeah, and so in, in humanism, as I was reading, you know, they uh, support the full ex- expression of human rights in their uh, ways to pursue their own interests. That includes... Career-wise, includes specifically sexuality, concludes also um, all forms of belief. And so all religions are basically on an equal playing field. And everybody has their own permission to formulate an interior life, however they say fit. As long as you don't come and like now make that a standard to be accepted by other people. And so I think I'm, I'm going to pause now on this the talking side, and I want to get a little bit more into the discussion side. So with privatization and this issue where talking about uh, the Christian faith or talking about just uh, things that are non-natural, like uh, supernatural, uh, metaphysics, talking about God, talking about, well, um, Kenny is going to share with us about morality. I mean, that's a huge thing. How does a country adopt a moral set of values if they're the instigator of what those moral values should be. It's kind of like, sort of like uh, John, this is John's house. Well, all the rules inside of John's house, John devised because it's his house. And so if humanists, they look at the world as their house, and they design the rules for how to live in the house. So therefore, if they want to change the rules, they can change the rules whenever they want. And that's where morality loses its objective foundation, that if, if the person who designs the morals decides that those morals are no longer serving the interests that they want, then they can just change them. And that's the problem, because in our country, we, uh, it's founded upon uh, this thing called inalienable rights. But that's sort of like, it's confusing if it's a, from a humanist point of view, because a humanist would say, well, if those rights interfere with our philosophy of how to fulfill our highest ideals, then we will change them. Therefore, they're not inalienable. They're just convenient. They're convenient for the current purposes. Do you guys, if, if somebody would come to you and give you a proposition, what's the first kind of like initial response you have? Brandon, you're, you're talkative. I'm just going to pick on you. You really, you really feel passionate about communism. <clears throat> and maybe that's, maybe that's not a good example to use. But <laughs> How about let's do socialism? So um, it's a little bit softer. <laughs> how about how about this? Here, I'll be a humanist. Great, humanist. And and you want me to be a humanist because you want me to respect each and every person for their their own beliefs and and their own pursuit of happiness and and the ideals of the fullness of humanity. And you want to persuade me to be that. And, then, and how would you begin that conversation? So first, if I'm a humanist, I'm probably going to say you are one of those dangerous religious people that believes in some kind of objective moral value system that you're pressing on others. So you're a threat to the community. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's, that is great. Let's stop right there. This is typically kind of the way that a lot of us tend to approach conversations. We want to kind of point out, first of all, the mistake we're going to point out the error. Like, okay, let me just show you, first of all, why you're not quite where you need to be in your thinking on that before I even go into talking about where I think you should be. And the problem is, is that we think that way, but in our culture, that's completely intolerated. You are attacking me and trying to undermine my current existence and what I think is right before even trying to persuade me 
to consider something. That's what I want to get at is one of my points in talking in a privatized world is I found opening the right space. You have to open up a space for the conversation before you can even begin it. And that comes by being non-threatening. When you first point out to somebody that you think they're mistaken, immediately it becomes, you're wrong, I'm right. That space now is not a mutual space of journey together. It's now a, I'm going to educate you on what you're deficient in. Would you respond better to a, uh, somebody coming to you and saying something like, um, well, let's take, okay, so Brandon, he's like, you know, your, your religion is a threat to our society. He's going to come back and be like, what, what's your problem? What, what's going on? Why are you attacking me? And that, that's the privatization issue of, of our society is like, if we try to push ideas onto somebody, they're going to come back with being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why should I be just adopting this point of view from you? And I think Sean's going to talk a little bit more about it because in, in our current age, it's about having authenticity. It's about being a genuine person. And the problem with the privatization and the way that it's, uh, religion's been pushed out of the public sphere is that people don't want to talk about it because it becomes completely accusatory, usually, because we don't know how to speak in contextualized terms to open up a space for genuine dialogue. Now, genuine dialogue uh, would look something, I think, like this. You're the Christian, and I'm the humanist. I don't understand how the, the Christians believe that their religious system is going to solve the problems of the world. Now, I've asked you a question, and that, what does that offer you? That offers you a way, a, a way for you to speak into the space where you're at. You come back and say, well, the Christian faith does X, Y, and Z, and, and that is helpful because of A, B, and C. And then I can come back and respond to your suggestions. But the problem is, is when we, we overstep and we try to, it's almost like we become the humanists where we want other people to adopt our point of view almost forcefully. The humanists want, they want everybody to adopt their point of view, and they've been quite successful at it. Our, our society is quite embracing of the idea of keep your religion at home and go to your church on Sunday if you want, but don't talk about it at the grocery store. Don't talk about it on television. And don't, gosh, don't share it at your schools. You know, uh, that's, that's, that's become the norm. And so they've, they've pushed their agenda on us. And for us just to kind of push back, it's just going to be a culture war where I think, I, and this is my suggestion, the more effective means is to engage in a mutual uh, journey together of uh, investigation. The next thing that I want to talk about, uh, I have two points. One is uh, the best way to talk about the gospel is first, I think, to be more aware of the space in which you open that conversation. Be more understanding of their reluctance to your ideas about religion, about God, uh, seeing as the dominant uh, philosophy and mode of thinking is humanism. So they're going to be reticent to start with. Um, I read a study recently, 87% of outsiders perceive Christianity to be negative and judgmental. So you can already assume, okay, 87%, that only leaves 13 out of 100 people who don't think this. You can already assume if you want to talk about your faith, you're going to be talking to somebody who has a pessimistic outlook on your position already. And they may be completely ignorant about what it really is, but they have a preconceived framework to view it. Secondly, if we're talking to younger people, millennials and younger, uh, another study said that only 9% of, of the younger generation trusts what a Christian says. That's a terrible testimony, but it's one in which we live. Christians, by and large, have a very bad rap for being hypocritical, for telling people what they should do, but then not actually living it themselves. This is the, the realm of our dialogue, is people think poorly of us to start with. They, they think poorly of our system of beliefs about the gospel 
God, Jesus, and everything. And they also don't trust what we have to say because we're perceived as being hypocrites. So we're coming into this environment and to create a space where somebody's willing to engage in and talk with us, uh, I think that that is the first step. If you can't get to a space where somebody's willing to enter into a genuine mutual dialogue, then I think the conversation is going to be over pretty quick. The second thing that I have found and I would suggest to you guys is about contextualizing the presentation. And this is uh, something that I become very interested in, and that's how do you get somebody to, how do you win somebody to even think about your position as being credible? You know, just claiming propositional truth is completely ineffective in a postmodern society where humanism reigns. It's just that people are so protective and defensive when somebody tries to push their ideas onto them by just stating propositional truth, meaning Don't you know that the Bible says this? Well, for all these people, the Bible is just a book. It's just a book that that these weirdos read in these buildings that are all funny decorated. You know, they don't don't view the Bible as authoritative. You can't start from the position of which you ground yourself. You have to start from the position in which they ground themselves. And contextualizing the presentation of the gospel requires us to rethink and sort of like get into their shoes, like what do they value, and how can I begin where they're at? It's, it's meeting people where they are. That's, that's the basic bottom line. We have to also understand that the humanist is very self-centered. The humanist is apathetic to all things not natural, uh, and they are a pleasure-driven and empirically-based society. It's, like, it's basically, th- those are the stipulations upon which they operate, And so how can we make the good news actually good news to these people? Well, the way that I I think and I would like to suggest is that we try to understand the thing that they prize most about that part of their world. We speak into that the way that Jesus spoke into it in, in the first century. Jesus in the first century, in the way that he spoke to the culture, I don't think is any different than the way that we should be speaking to our culture today. And there's going to be a whole presentation, and I'd like to talk a lot uh, with you guys about that, but there's nothing different about the way that the world is working. It's just different labels, basically. You know, back in Jesus' time, the, the humanism of their day basically was a pagan mythology Everything that they did to appease the gods was self-centered to begin with. It was just they believed in some abstract concept where nowadays we believe in science, uh, objective, verifiable facts based upon experimentation and observation. So the thing is still the same, that people have always made themselves the center of the world and have tried to live out of that sphere, whereas today people have still made themselves the center yet they've just changed the way it it looks. So uh, the last thing about contextualizing the gospel, um, and I I call it engaging the heart. And if I found that if you want to have people actually consider what you have to say, you have to say it in a way that is meaningful to them that actually reaches their heart. Now, it's meaning when when I say meeting people where they're at, and finding kind of where their personal interests are and beginning there, uh, I'm not just saying, you know, talk about similar interests. And I'm not talking about uh, you like baseball, I like baseball, or you want to talk about tractors, let's talk about tractors. It's not about the mutual interests so much as it is, why do you believe what you believe? You, You ask the question for them to express to you where they're at rather than you assuming and coming and being like, I know where you're at, I know you believe this, and it's wrong, and you shouldn't believe it because this is a better thing to believe. And it's, it's basically just like rapid fire, and before you know it, they're going to be like, thanks, see ya, have a nice day. We're in a world where if you can't reach somebody and have them understand that you just want to talk about why they are who they are, because what that does is it basically makes them uh, yes, let, let's make you the center of this conversation again. And they like that because they're, they're the center of their own world to begin with. And so you've all heard the thing, people like to talk about themselves. Totally true. 
And so just ask them about themselves. Ask them for them to tell your story. The millennials in the post-Christian culture, they, they're all about storytelling. They're all about how they find themselves in this greater matrix of the world. And so if we can do a better job to try to reach people in that particular area and then begin to bring in the gospel and how you want to offer a, a, a different perspective for them to consider with a good reason, like speak to the need that they have and then let them respond. And if they disagree, that's okay. Because to win the day is not to convert them on the spot. To win the day is to tell them there's a different way that you think is better that you'd like to demonstrate to them how come you have been convinced by it. So rather than it being a debate, it becomes a dialogue. And the way you approach the conversation is everything. And so those are the two things I wanted to share. Uh, I want to kind of talk about how we came to this issue of humanism and privatization. But then in this privatized world where we really aren't supposed to be talking about our faith in the public sphere, that there's a way to open up a space to have these conversations. And when you get that space, be very careful about how you bring together the ideas of the gospel with their worldview. And to know that they're going to clash But if you try to cause the collision, the collision is going to end the conversation. So um, open a space that's mutually inviting and engage the heart. So um, with that, I just want to field some questions and talk about some of these issues. If there's anything you guys have to to also include. Yes, Stacy, go ahead. So the thing that I've noticed is if you can get somebody else, like you said, to talk about themselves and talk about their beliefs, then you can... I don't know if I can say this correctly, you can then find the issues with it, where they're hung up, and and dive in that way and really open the space that way. If Mm -hmm. you assume you know why they believe what they believe, then you're probably wrong. But if you get them talking, which they'll love to talk, then you can figure out how they became to believe that way and and the way you can transform your message to relate to their... Yes, and I think one of the things I found very effective is asking them, what do you believe about God? I mean, maybe they don't believe in God at all, but they have a conception of who God is, of which they're typically, they've made their judgment based upon that conception that they don't like that God, typically. You know, so when you ask them, you realize, gosh, I really don't know why I believe what I believe. Or, like, you'll find the holes there. Mm-hmm. That's another great point, because a lot of people, they have like a groupthink mentality that if they're part of a social circle that by and large just discredits theistic belief, sometimes they just adopt it because of in our humanness, our fallen humanness, we subconsciously try to conform to ideals that make us accepted in the group. It's just, it's just the way we work right now in this world, in, our, in this fallen world. So yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you for saying that. That was a great comment. Any other questions or any other uh, experience? People, uh, have you guys ever talked with somebody and received a very negative reaction because you brought up faith in a public arena? Sure, they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed that you stepped over a taboo. I believe at least I am. I mean, um, and, I, and I'm not trying to convince anybody. Actually, I'm trying to be convinced by people, right? You're out wanting to engage in a dialogue makes people uncomfortable. These are, and going back to your, your point about humanism, if you've accepted the idea that truth is relative, then it's, it's a deeply private thing that you're now asking. It's like asking them to talk about what happens in their bedroom or something. You've crossed this taboo line. And yeah, to your second point, then if, if we're going to engage somebody there, the level of friendship and intimacy that has to be present first is much higher. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you hold to a a biblical kind of worldview or a theistic worldview, then we all have these deep needs that if we're atheists are going unmet and we cope with all the things we cope with, alcohol and food and sex and drugs and all this stuff. So the needs have to be there. So I, I guess I would just second what I've heard here and just mm-hmm. say I've, I've been the person on the other end of that and I am still to some degree. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the old millennial but um, but I'm a millennial that's, that's trying to open up and be at that level of, of vulnerability to be able to talk about that kind of stuff. 
So, um, so I relate, I relate to that, and, and the idea of being winsome apologists that are trying, trying to reach out to people and mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and be friends maybe first before work. Yeah. First of all, you're absolutely right with the privatization issue, is that you're basically stepping into their personal life in an inappropriate way, pretty much, and they're, they're, they don't like that. And, and secondly, 1 Peter 3.15, to give in a, a defense of the hope that is in you, and how you to do that. You do that with um, gentleness and meekness, if I remember the text. Respect. That, uh, so building relationships, people with the Hegelian dialectic thinking of the both and, if you try to propose an, an alternate idea, people are going to immediately be like, well, what's wrong with my idea? You can have your idea and I can have my idea. So it's, it's kind of like you don't get anywhere just by saying a new thing. You get somewhere by people trusting you and saying, would you be willing to talk about this because I want to know more about why you're where you're at and I'd like to share where I'm at. And have it not be like, you need to be where I'm at. Have it be, let's just have an open, genuine, authentic conversation. And if we walk away still on different sides, that's not a loss. The victory is found when, people, when you engage people and you get people to actually talk. Because that's when ideas are shared. And if people hear new ideas, they have a chance then to rethink their current position. Did you have something, Kim? What you're saying, I think there's two different types of humanists, just like there's two types of atheists. There's people who have had bad experiences, and that's why they've chosen to believe where they're at currently. The main problem I've always had is that when you start having these conversations, it's with somebody who has a lot of, a lot of baggage tied into Christianity. So they're waiting for you to start shaming them. So the first time you say anything that challenges them, they're waiting for it to turn, to turn extremely shameful. And then their willingness to listen, their willingness to talk, totally shuts down. You know, you've brought in like a trauma from their life about the time they were kicked out of a church or their family was kicked out of a church. And our generation is the first time that there's a choice. Like, it's socially yeah. acceptable to not be forced into believing in Christianity. To be we were raised by people yeah. who didn't have that choice. If you didn't believe, it didn't matter, you were still going and you were still claiming it because you had to have a label. Yeah. Our generation doesn't have to have a label. You can mm -hmm. just say, I don't know what I believe, and nobody's going to question it, or well, people question it, but not many. And not among your exception. social group, probably, in particular, they're not going to question mm -hmm. yeah. um, And it's more comfortable to not have a label because yeah. then you don't have to defend it. Yeah. You know? um, but I do think that that common ground, just like with anything else, even in the medical field, you know, with your doctor, you need that rapport. You need that interpersonal relationship before you're willing to talk about things that hurt. And so if they do have that traumatic past with some sort of Christianity, or even their grandparents who shamed them into being a Christian until they were 26 and finally they were able to walk away, that is the only way you're going to change somebody who's been through things like that is by having that relationship instead of just finding the things that you believe differently and then trying to kindly attack it or unground that. I think. Like when you were reading the manifesto, there were a lot of things at the beginning that I could have completely told you I agree with that. Well, it sounds good <laughs> on the surface. From that, and it's like, well, that doesn't necessarily equal that. You know, the whole um, values over fact. I think a lot better way to look at that is our values is a sliding whatever towards truth. Like there's still an absolute truth at the end, and where you're at and what you've been through definitely is what you believe, because that's what you know. But it still is always going towards the same truth. And so I don't know, I just, I, like if I could look at that instead of like one over the other or one separate from the other, I see a lot more common ground for us to have conversations and have, you know, that whole common ground with them to be able to then look at the idea of, okay, well, five years from now, you're going to have experienced a lot of other things, different traumatic things, um, different good things. And, you know, the whole idea of humanism is, you're going to see it differently at that point. Yeah. So when you mm -hmm. say that's not always going towards the same truth, there's still the truths. It's just you haven't experienced it yet. Yeah. yeah and I think there's different subjects that are more conducive than others to, to beginning the, that value system conversation as to where their trajectory toward truth goes. And uh, Kenny's going to talk a little bit about that with morality is a, a really big one because it's, it's the touchstone basically on well, if, if everything that uh, is believed to be right and wrong in our society is based on a humanistic, empiricist, 
um, you know, science-based system, then that system can begin to change and evolve as new advances and understandings come about and, and it changes. And so therefore, morality will shift and change as time goes along. But then we, you can present the opposite side to that as well as, well, what if there was a more consistent system? And, and so that, that's, that starts the conversation, but you know, you're right, there's, there's a lot of ways to, to venture into that dichotomy between value and fact from a humanist perspective and a theist perspective. I want to ask one question here. Um, how many of you guys have talked with somebody about your faith in which you had a sensation of reluctance or embarrassment that you were actually talking about it? I've, I've felt uncomfortable, like, maybe I really shouldn't be talking about this to these people. You know, it just, and I think that that is at the heart of, that's, that's the heart of our issue, I think, on our side, that we've allowed the culture to sort of sway our opinion and our comfortability in speaking the gospel. And if it is good news, then, like, like Paul says, you know, I'm, I am not ashamed of the gospel, uh, well, well, why? It's the power of God. It's salvation. It, I mean, if people don't want to, to talk about it, they don't want to hear it, they don't agree with it, that's, that's, that's okay. I mean, I have people talk to me all the time about ideas in their tastes in music or their, their decorating and fashion. I mean, I'm not supposed to wear striped shirts with plaid shorts. I mean, I'm, I'm told what to do in all kinds of areas. Sorry, I just pick on you, Laura. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't, I don't, um, I don't feel bad to say I disagree, and I bet you they don't feel bad to tell me what they think. But when, you come, when it comes to religion, it's like almost we turn into the, we, we, trans, we transition into this other dimension where it's almost like there's such an auspices of like hush-hush, like Brandon saying taboo, that I think we have become... Uh, affected by it to the point where I personally uh, have not been as bold, have not been as open and willing to engage as I should be, uh, and have sort of catered to the environment to sort of like, I don't want to make them upset, I don't want to make them think that I'm one of those Christians, or there's a a myriad of different reasons why we would not want to talk about it, but the fact is that I think all of us have been affected on some level by the humanistic movement to keep religion out of the public life. And so I think that if there's anything you get from my talk today, it's that we need to reflect upon how we have changed our way of being witnesses for Jesus based upon the current cultural shift to humanism. So uh, if there's any last questions, uh, take them. Otherwise, um, thank you for listening. Any questions? I was really impressed by Nancy Piercy's idea of total truth that because I think this is really a big part of the whole idea is that we have this idea that your, your faith is in a separate compartment and that's in the private area. And then um, you know you have your, your whatever skill, workplace, life you have, and that's in its own compartment. And then you have your, your family or whatever it is you do on the weekend. You know, and like this really compartmentalized reality. And um, I, I think she's right that most Christians are, ourselves buy into this so that we don't realize the power of the Christian worldview to sort of like make life awesome in all different areas. Yeah, she calls it the integrated whole. It's not just fire insurance, you know, or just like satisfying our need for existential angst, you know, like having a sense of purpose. It's not just, it's not just that. It also helps... It also really helps a lot in parenting. It helps a lot in, in work, in relationships. I mean, the Christian worldview is, is super robust. And, and, it, and it's founded on love. It's not founded on, like, you must believe in these 17,452 doctrines. You know, it's like Jesus boils it down, love God and love your neighbor. I mean, like, why are we proud of this and, like, eager to help other people? The reality is... Yeah, the reality of the, of the Christian biblical worldview is simple. You know, it's not about trying to get them to buy into this massive belief system. It's about we're just trying to, to change their view to a, a different reality. And from that reality, they can grow 
in, in their relationship with God and, and everything, but I think sometimes we try too much to disprove what we think they're mistaken about rather than leading them to the source of life of which an experience with him, them, those people up there, that that is what is life transforming, not our uh, arguments. So you're talking to somebody and that person is, maybe they're a lukewarm Christian, maybe their grandparents were Christian and they're not really, but they still self-identify and it's convenient. Or maybe they're, they're like a hardcore secularist, which is, you know, a little more rare. But like, could you, could you offer some advice as far as like how to bring up this like sort of like worldview approach? Um, to, in other words, to take it out of the private and sort of like be, be able to talk about it, but not necessarily directly in an inappropriate, sensitive way like Brandon was saying. Well, I don't think you're going to get away from that sensation because once you start trying to integrate the bedroom life with the workplace life, which is just a metaphor for your so private and public life. Start with the workplace, start with some other area where you know, they don't like sort of automatically think of Christianity as having any relevance. And you can show it does have relevance. Mm-hmm. Well, for example, for like a workplace, you know, talking with coworkers about how does your faith affect the way you work, you know, you can, I would say, just open up a conversation and be like, you know, why do you come to work every day? What is work to you? You know, just get them talking about their life and the things they do and be like, you know, if, if there was a better job, would you choose it and why? Are they in it for the money? Most people probably are, you know, and then you can say, well, you know, if there's a better job, I might take it. But what I really like about this job, and you can explain maybe, maybe your relationships with people, maybe the way that you feel you are a factor for good there, helping to promote a certain piece of society and a product or something like that that helps make life better. There's a lot of different ways that you can be doing the work of the Lord in your context for the betterment of the world and have that be a, a non-selfish or self-gaining motivation. So I think there's a lot of ways to talk. That's just one example. Did you have another one that you like to do? Or? Well, I, I really like that. Um, you know, it seems like number one is for us to integrate ourselves as Christians so that we start to recognize the power of the gospel to inform every area of life. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we don't, we don't have a conversation to have. We, we don't have anything to say. And then to, to find those ways in on sort of like publicly acceptable subjects like work or, you know, there's always a, some sort of tragedy in the news. That, and, and, and within a secular worldview or like a typical American, like what, what do you even do with that? Oh, they're, they're insane. They're, they're really sound insane. I don't know if that hypothesis, you know, like, I don't know. You know, being able to, like, talk about Because, like, we have, we have, like, a really awesome way of thinking about the whole thing. So we have the creation, we have the fall. You know, we believe, we believe in real evil. So for, mm-hmm. for our worldview to handle, like, horrible tragedy, it's not, it's not really that hard for us to make sense of it. I mean, it's still... If you can get them to talk about the problems of the world and gratuitous evil, I think you've got them. Like that, that is a place where the Christian worldview dominates. If you have a humanistic mindset, you can, you can work for your own personal betterment, for your, getting a big home, many cars, whatever you want. You can, you can live for the money, and a lot of people do that. You can't have that type of an argument when it comes to things like the horrendous evils of the past century. So that might be another way in if that kind of subject comes up. And the, and the moral argument, what you're tying into is the moral argument. I mean, people deep down, I mean, what's funny to me about the Humanist Manifesto is all the self-refuting statements it makes. So, so presupposes. Yeah. Um, and then, um, including outrage at injustice and, right, um, and then says, but those measures for injustice are variable over time. Whatever outrages you now versus whatever outrages you later. Yeah, they should have like a, a, a disclosure at the beginning, you know, life as we know it until it changes. Yeah. <laughs> I think you said something really interesting that I, I think you hit on uh, a real critical point. You said <coughs> that we have bought into the culture of practicing as yeah. Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a close friend who is an Indian, um, was born and raised in India, moved here um, when he was about. 20-ish, and uh, he's about 30 now. You know, when we, we go out and about, he's a Christian, um, he's, uh, he's a Christian minister. When we go out and about, he doesn't have that at all. 
that that whole concept of you know faith is kind of the private area of life and you know those kind of things. He doesn't have that at all, and it doesn't. And he's he sees it in our culture, and it was really strange for him to begin with. He sees it in our culture, but he doesn't have that same thing. It's really interesting being with him in situations like I remember one time we were we were at a bookstore. We went in to, to buy some book, and he starts preaching the gospel to the cashier. You know? and, and he's just talking to her about it, right? He's just talking about Jesus to, to this cashier. And and you could tell from the look on her face, she's she's like, why is this person talking to me? <laughs> you know, he doesn't have that. And and so we don't even know that we have that. We don't it, it you know, unless we really start thinking about it, we don't even realize that we have privatized our, our faith, and yet we're very much called to a, a different model. And, you know, a, 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 we're supposed to reach out to the culture. Well, I think, I think the, the issue has come with uh, Christian passivity and the individualization of, of the faith where we see ourselves as Christians uh, in and of our own. Like we, we believe and we have our faith, but we don't see our... And in Western Christianity, we don't see ourselves as a community of faith. And also we don't see ourselves uh, in, in the sense in the world as the representatives of Christ, you know, so we, we've taken our faith and it's it's been very localized. And like you said, we have, and in a sense, we privatized our faith. Um, and, and I think that's that's the issue is, is we sort of like we don't want to be uncomfortable. And talking with people in which they're going to push back um, can be very uncomfortable. Usually is, you know. And so I think that is some of the I think that some of it's fear. I think some of it also is that uh, we're afraid. But we're also, it's about self-image, you know, that we don't want to be the, the weird person who always talks about Jesus, you know. But did you have a question, Matt? Um, yeah, I, the, uh, you're talking about finding time, like find that space. Finding space. Yeah. Space being a metaphor for a, uh, a conversation realm. Yeah, the word comes to mind with hospitality. I mean, talk about trust and building relationships. I mean, somebody might have questions, but you know, there's, there's, you can get pretty far if somebody would like to watch it. You know, and that's kind of blending the public and the private life too. Is when you bring somebody and watch you interact within your own house or whatever sphere you're you're in. You know, that's that's seeing what you're proposing in action and how that works out for you. And I think uh, hospitality, like say in India, other countries, hospitality is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they weld those two areas pretty solid together. And we don't have that much of a hospitable, maybe, society as we once used to. So that's, that, that's a big thing with, you know, we talk about presenting the gospel or whatever, you know, or tracks. Your house is probably the best reading track you could have heard somebody. Um, so I think hospitality goes really far in making maybe that space. That oh, it's, it's huge because part of hospitality is allowing a, a person to, yep. to be who they are yep. and that when they come into the, that space that you're not immediately trying to pressure them into a different a different uh, worldview or a different a change in beliefs. And I think, I think the more powerful testimony, like you said, is, is our life. You know, the way we live, um, it is the outworking of our faith. And if those two are not commensurate, then it's almost like, this, this is the problem with being non-authentic, is people in the younger generation would be like, uh, they know that these issues are complex. And if you just try to simplify it, and yet also you kind of are deviating from that yourself, it's just, just a walking hypocrite, and immediately they just they just write you off. Right, and yeah. like a sense of a humanist. Everybody has a sense of investment, and if we can put the work into something, they want to know what their return is. So they kind of like to see how that's working out for you. <laughs> and, and vice versa, you know, you get quite far in asking them the same question. You know, how's that? How's your return on what you are putting your effort in? Yeah, that sense of investment. Deep down, everybody wants a good investment for the return regardless of what because they're you know self-centered too. But they like to get the best bang for the buck too. And if you think you have a better investment plan, 
you might be curious to watch to see how that what that all looks like. That's it's a good way to describe if you're it. Not living out your walk, then yeah. essentially what you're saying to them is very hollow. Yeah. We're probably, let's wrap up. We got some refreshments in the kitchen and we can mingle and talk. And if you guys do have questions, come up and see me. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in today. If you'd like to know more about Jerry Weirwell, check out the show notes for this episode on your device or stop by restitudio.org and search for podcast 143, The Problem of Privatization, to see other podcasts that Weirwell has done. Or visit his website, which is just simply jerryweirwell.com. That's W-I-E-R-W-I-L-L-E for Werewolf. Next week, we'll put out part two of the conference, my own talk, called An Apologetic Strategy in Our Postmodern World. And essentially there, I'm looking at how, how we can build a case for why somebody should even care what Christianity has to say about this or that without having to first convert someone out of postmodernism and into a Christian worldview. Also, I've received a couple of comments on Chuck Whitlock's interview on Truth Matters, and the first one comes from Kevin G., who says, Excellent article and interview, Chuck. It seems we began our journey about the same time five years ago. Your having children, as I also do, really presents a challenge. We can't go along pretending all is normal and then go home after a quote-unquote orthodox church time and spend the rest of each Sunday telling the kids how all that was taught and preached is wrong. That defeats the idea of going to church and will ultimately ruin the children. Like you, I came out of a conservative Baptist background, having studied my way out of it unintentionally, I should add, and can totally relate to your struggles. My policy for fellowship is that if they walk like a true Christian and talk like a true Christian, I will loosely assume they are true Christians and are merely deceived as I once was. But most who pose as Christians are merely cultural Christians, so we have to keep that in mind also. We have mostly opted to home church, listening mostly to Living Hope in New York. But our children need friends, and so do we, so we have a tension about what to do for church. If there was at least one biblical Unitarian in our area, North Texas, I'd be willing to do door-to-door visitation and start a work. I am praying for that to come to pass. Blessings. Thanks for writing in, Kevin. Um, I'm glad to hear that you are tuning into Living Hope. Uh, that's my own church here in Albany, New York, and we have a webcast that goes out every Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time at 10.30 at lhim.org. That stands for Living Hope International Ministries.org. And glad to have anybody else tune in if you'd like to do that. As far as a virtual church goes, I would definitely recommend checking out Interview 32 called Virtual Fellowship for Isolated Believers with John Truitt, in which he talks about how he has an online fellowship where he gets together with other folks. I mean, it doesn't necessarily solve the the problem of a face-to-face community, but it does go a long way. So take a look at that. Once again, that's interview number 32, and you can get in touch with John Truitt on his YouTube channel, which is called Christian Virtual Fellowship. You can just search for that, or by emailing him at jtruitt, T-R-U-I-T-T, at kaleo.net, K-A-L-L-E-O.net. If you would like to get more information or join in on his virtual church, he has a number of different meetings throughout the week. Chuck Whitlock replies to Kevin G and says, the kids really do add weight to these questions, don't they? We did the thing you described wherein we tried to go to church and then argue against everything said on the way home, LOL. There was significant family tension over the risk of becoming those people that oppose everything, stand for nothing, and have no humility or submission. Our kids definitely went through those identity phases of our family is the sole arbiter of truth, even though we opposed it. I think we ended up okay on those questions. The kids are old enough to reflect on it themselves. We worried that our heretic children would never find mates, that the price of truth would be permanent loneliness and isolation but we have corrupted enough of their friends that there has been one wedding and probably another in the not-too-distant future. Hooray! I like the policy for fellowship. I'm not sure we can do anything else. Hey, Chuck, uh, just another idea to throw out there. We have some young biblical Unitarian 
men and women here in New York that would probably love to meet some of your kids and uh, Kevin's kids and whoever else is out there listening that if you would like to get together, we are having a big summer event in September, September 7 to 9, called Kingdom Fest. And it's a great time to bring people together. And I mean, even if uh, marriages don't come out of it, uh, it's just a wonderful time for face-to-face fellowship, breaking bread together, listening to teachings, and being able to sort of uh, relax a little bit from the doctrinal onslaught that we face in other churches and communities. Furthermore, I want to recommend Robin Todd's work called The Scattered Brethren, and you can reach that at scatteredbrethren.org, where he has an active register of biblical Unitarians throughout the country and actually around the world, and he can put you on a list and put you in touch with other folks that may live near you. So if you're not in contact with Robin Todd, I would and you're, and you're feeling isolated, I would definitely get in contact with him. Send him an email, Robin Sings for You. He's a, uh, a singer, so that's why uh, that's his email address. And uh, he will be able to work with you and help you at least get listed so that when others in your area uh, come to see the light that God is revealing more and more in our time, that they will be able to get in contact with you down the line. So that's, that's another recommendation. One last quick comment comes from Daniel Wall who writes, first off, I just want to lead with, I'm a longtime listener to the podcast. I'm pretty sure I've been listening since episode one. Sean does an excellent job with the podcast. Not only does he try to spread truth and engage in all aspects of our current culture, but he does a great job introducing his listeners to material that is outside their purview. This is one of the most exciting elements to this podcast, is the vast wealth of information, sources, and groups that I've become familiar with while listening. The recent series on Calvinism was a great introduction for me to view Tulip from a Calvinistic perspective. The theological episodes, as well as the episodes engaging culture and more grassroots areas, have been beneficial to me in my own life and spiritual walk. I would encourage others to listen and learn. I encourage Sean to keep up the good work of the gospel. May we run with endurance the race set before us. Thanks so much, Dan. In fact, you were one of the main inspirations for this podcast getting started in the first place because, uh, as you recall, back then, I think it was 2015 maybe, uh, you were training, starting to train for a marathon, and you were uh, burning through all these podcasts, and and you're asking me for, hey, don't you have anything good that that you can recommend to me? And I had this whole folder on my computer called Famous Sermons, and uh, it's stuff from all over, from years ago and from recent times, that when I heard something I really thought was profound or life-changing, I just saved it to that folder. So I I, I thought to myself, well, in the smartphone era where no longer is it easy, especially for iPhone users, to access and just download a basic audio file, really podcasting does need to be the way to go where you make it easy for people. So I was like, all right, let's put together a podcast for Dan. I'll put my own stuff on there, put stuff by other people, and this will give him something to keep his mind occupied in mile after mile on the road. And so, Dan, I want to thank you for uh, being a big part of why I got this thing started as well. And it's, it's grown a lot, and I'm really happy about that. I wasn't really sure if I was going to run out of material early on, and uh, that has not happened, thankfully. There's just so much material and new material all the time. I've got plans to release a just big-time theology class, 30 classroom sessions, episodes, and uh, stay tuned for more information about that, along with other sermons and lectures and stuff I've done, stuff from other folks. So I'm really happy with how it turned out. If any of you would like to make a review uh, especially in iTunes or on your podcast app, however that works, uh, or on Stitcher as well. We only have one review on Stitcher right now. Uh, it really does help people find the podcast and spread the word, so I certainly would appreciate that. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.